So we saw last week, as Pastor Tony talked about in 1 Kings uh, 18, uh, Elijah goes to Obadiah. And so as you read that in the first part of chapter 18, uh, he goes to Obadiah and he says, uh, hey, I, I want to meet, a I want Ahab and I'd have a conversation. And so uh, last week, Pastor Tony talked about that and how there's some people that are Obadiahs and uh, they uh, have a task that God has given them and they're not uh, always the type A personality like Elijah is. And then there's the Elijahs that are the type A personality and that they're go-getters and, you know, they're out on the front lines. And so today is the culmination of that request. And so Elijah asked Ahab to, uh, he asked Obadiah to meet with Ahab. And so here we get to chapter 18 and verse 17. And uh, we pick up where we left off last Sunday in verse 17. The Bible says, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? Now, I have a lot to say about that, but we're only going to talk a little about it. This is just the weirdest response to me. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, Elijah says, in your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel. And the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Now, I want you to think about this. For three and a half years, Ahab has been searching for Elijah. Remember, Elijah told him three and a half years earlier, there's going to be a drought and there's not going to be any rain until I say something uh, different. And so for three and a half years, we learned that Ahab has been looking for Elijah. And so now here he is. The one who prophesied that there would be a drought for three and a half years is standing right before King Ahab. Now, King, uh, Ahab, if you don't know, is king at the time, and he's standing before Elijah the prophet. Now, they've been looking for three and a half years. And as I was thinking about that, is the first thing that you're going to say to the person that you've been looking for for so long, to, to the guy who apparently has the ear of God, you're going to condemn him? You're going to accuse him of something? So he says, hey, you, you troubler of Israel. See, Ahab is bitter, I, I think, at this moment. I mean, think about it. He's the king, and he's supposed to be able to run everything, and he's supposed to be able to rule everything and control everything. And, and the god uh, Baal, the false god that he serves, has not been able to deliver and so he finds himself in this, this middle ground. He says, okay, well, I, I've, I can't do anything for the people of Israel. They expect me to do something for them, but I can't. I don't have the ability to do anything about this drought. And the false God that I serve, he's not showing up. And so he's fallen into this bitterness. He's at the end of his rope, and the God that he serves is a no-show. But Elijah stands right in the face of accusation, and he shows absolutely no sign of fear. In Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 1, the Bible says that the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. So here's Elijah standing before Ahab. The accusations are coming at him, and yet he stands his ground. He's bold as a lion. He doesn't flinch when he's wrongly accused. He just tells it exactly like it is. Now, sometimes that can get us in trouble, right? You know, if we just say exactly the way things are or they should be. But Elijah says, look, I got one thing on my mind right now, and that is I want to honor God. I want to be obedient to God. And so 
He tells Ahab exactly what the situation is. He says, no, it's not me. It's your fault that we're in this situation. It's your fault that you're in this scenario for the entire nation because of your sin. And so he says, so here's what we're going to do, king. We're going to get together, and you're going to bring all of your prophets, and I'm going to show up, and we're going to meet at Mount Carmel. And so in verse 36, as we'll see a little bit later, Elijah states that he did these things at the word of God. And so God apparently had a conversation that we don't see here in Scripture with uh, Elijah, and he told him exactly what he was to do. Think of the confidence that it takes for Elijah to go after he's been three and a half years. What he said was going to happen did happen, and he stands before the king who accuses him of that and has the ability to kill him, and yet in that moment he has absolute 100% confidence. Now, what I want you to see here is that the confidence had absolutely nothing to do with Elijah. Elijah wasn't confident because his name was Elijah. He was confident because his God was the Lord Jesus, right? And so he's standing before Ahab in the confidence and the boldness of who God is. And so in verse 20, it says that Ahab sent to all the people of Israel, and he gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. So he instantly obeyed. Now, again, think about what's going on here. The prophet, who's been absent for three and a half years, shows up to the king, and the king, he tells the king what to do, and instantly the king obeys. And so the Bible says that they all gathered together. Now, it's interesting that Ahab obeyed. As I was studying through this and looking at some different instances in Scripture, it was reminiscent of when Herod was fearful of John, and when Felix, if you'll remember, when he stood before Paul, when Paul stood before Felix, rather, the Bible says that Felix trembled. And that's where we get that famous, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. And so we see here that Ahab now submits to the commands of Elijah, which ultimately are God's commands. And so everybody gets together. So they gather uh, the nation together, as many as will come. They bring the prophets there. Uh, the invitation is for everyone to show up, I imagine. They uh, send everyone an email. They maybe tagged a lot of people on Facebook, said, hey, we're going to have this bit. That was supposed to be a joke, by the way. We're going to have all this, this get-together, and we're going to see who the real God of Israel is. And so they all got together, and there's, you know, many different people have opinions on the amount of people there. Suffice it to say, there are several thousand. And so there's a lot of people here that have gathered together on Mount Carmel. And so all these people are here, and the prophets are here of Baal uh, for uh, King Ahab, and Elijah's here. And they're having this big standoff. Now, everybody knows what's happening, right? They're all together. Now, what's, the reason that we're in this situation is Ahab and his family have led uh, the Israelites down a, a path of idolatry. And they began to serve false gods. And so you've got these people in the crowd that want to appease the king. And so they're standing there, and they've got the prophets of Baal. And then they've also got uh, Elijah there. And Elijah represents Yahweh God. And so the crowd, I would imagine, is kind of in this in-between situation. You know, they've got Elijah who they feel like, hey, you know, I heard he's responsible for all this rain not coming. And then they've got Ahab who, again, is the king and can do whatever he wants. And so, you know, first of all, I imagine that they're expecting something exciting to happen. Word got out that Elijah has been found. 
and Elijah is going to be at Mount Carmel. And so I imagine there's lots of buzz that, hey, uh, did you hear Elijah's going to be there? Hey, Elijah, we got to go. We got to go see this man, Elijah. And then we have this, this challenge that's been issued. And so the expectation is that both Ahab and Jezebel then will show up. Now, I imagine that the crowd was probably caught between two worlds. Should they bow in allegiance to Baal? Should they stand on Ahab's side with the king? Or should they now show their allegiance to Yahweh, which they have certainly shirked that uh, responsibility with Elijah there? And so here they are caught between these two worlds. They're vacillating between right and wrong, if you will. Now, one of the things as you'll read through as we continue on that you'll find is that there's someone markedly absent from this whole situation, and her name is Jezebel. Now, we'll, we'll get to her next week, but she's not here at this big showdown. Now, is it, is it possible that Jezebel didn't know anything about this? Is it possible that she is hiding? There's no mention of, of her showing up, and as we'll see, there's also no mention of the prophets of Ashtoreth that are there either. There's 400 of them that are absent from this whole situation. And so I see that some decisions have been made before anything even happens. That there's some people that didn't show up to see who God really is. People that didn't show up to see the falsehood of who they served. And so in verse 19, we see that it was the prophets of Ashtoreth that were the ones that ate at the table of Jezebel. So she has their ear, and they certainly have hers. You see, Ahab's failure to bring these 400 prophets to Mount Carmel might have been a sly, in his mind, maybe a slick move. Maybe him and Jezebel, uh, and I'm embellishing the story here, maybe they decided, you know what, uh, let's, not, let's not send the 400 prophets. You just take the prophets of Baal, and let's see what happens. Maybe he thought he was pulling a fast one. On God, but what ended up happening, if you'll, as we'll continue to read in First Kings chapter twenty-two, there's a record of Ahab, and he was seeking advice from the prophets of Astra about what he should do in the battle of Ramoth Gilead. And so God's faithful prophet Micah came up and said, "Hey, you do not need to go." But the four hundred prophets of Ashtoreth said, "Hey, you need to go into battle." And so guess what Ahab did? He took their advice. And Ahab listened to them, and that was the demise of Ahab. And so we'll see that it was a very costly mistake on Ahab's part in not listening to what God had commanded for everyone to show up. And so they're going to Mount Carmel. Now, you know, why, why Mount Carmel? Why is this a significant place? Well, it was regarded uh, by the Phoenicians as a sacred dwelling place of Baal. Now, of all places that they would go, it seems like that would be the least likely, or would it? Now, God, what is God doing here? God is revealing himself to the nation of Israel. God is showing that he is the one true God. And so in doing so, his invitation is to a place of the home turf of the false god Baal himself. I find that very interesting. So in verse 21, it says, Elijah came near to all the people, and he said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Silence. The Bible says they didn't say anything. Nada. Zilch. 
nothing. In the middle of this, you know, climatic moment in their life, nothing is happening. They're not saying a word. And so instead of getting right to the fact of Elijah preaching the word or Elijah calling down rain or Elijah praying for fire or whatever it is that they could imagine in their minds was about to happen, he turns their attention, first of all, directly to them. And he asks the same question that Joshua raises in chapter 24. He says, who are you going to serve? You see, that's a great question for us to answer today. Because if we think about that in the life in which we live, we are torn between two worlds every single second of every single day. The world in which we live is constantly trying to draw us away, to get us to go to the false god Baal, to get us to go to the home turf of whoever it is that you may serve. Whatever it is that may be the idol in your life or in mine, the world is constantly trying to draw us away and saying, no, listen, this not bad. You should, you should do this. You should turn away. You should skip church. You should not spend time in your Bible. You shouldn't serve. All the things that as believers we know that God has commanded us to do, the world is saying, well, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. You see, I'm convinced that what the enemy has attempted to do is not to convince us to do the opposite, He's just convinced us to do less of what we know is to be right. And so Elijah said, hey, listen, how, are you gonna, how long are you going to let this happen? You see, the easiest thing to do in the hour of indecision is to remain uncommitted. When you have a decision to make, when I have a decision to make, the absolute easiest thing to do is just not do anything, Right? Just to not answer, not to pick a side, to linger in the neutral zone. And so the first blank on your handout this morning is that divided allegiance is the same as open idolatry. Divided allegiance is the exact same as open idolatry. Jesus said in Matthew, he said, you can't serve two masters Either you'll love one and hate the other. He goes on to say that you're either for me or you're against me. And so divided allegiance is the same thing as openly serving a false god. Jesus said that in uh, Revelation, he says, I would rather that you be hot or cold, but not lukewarm. He says, if you're lukewarm, I would spit you out of my mouth. But our world is full of people that are living in the neutral zone, right in the middle. They're not all in with God, but they're not all out with God. And so they want a little bit of religion. They want a little bit of Sunday morning Jesus. And then the rest of the week, they want to live exactly like they want to live. I, I, I do my very best not to watch the news. But every single time I turn it on, there is something else that is said that is so utterly ridiculous that I, I'm, I'm asking myself, are we really at this point in life? How did we get here? You know how we got there? Neutrality. People sitting in the middle not taking a stand, not saying what they believe, what they stand for, what the Word of God says. Neutrality. You see, we become spectators instead of participants. We want to wait and see how it turns out. Well, let's see what the majority decides on this whole issue, and then I'll tell you what I think about it. But unfortunately for the world today, being in the majority doesn't make anything right. Just because everybody agrees with it. You see, truth is not verified by popularity. And so here are the Israelites standing before the prophets of Baal, standing before Elijah. 
and they're trying to decide, okay, who are we really for? See, during the week, the attraction of the world tries to gain our attention while the love of God tugs at our hearts. And we have the opportunity to stand up to believe, for what we believe in. We have an opportunity to live the life that God calls us to live. But unfortunately, most people end up lame, just as the text says here, limping along in life. Matthew chapter 7 says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate that is narrow is the way and, and is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. He says, how long are you going to go limping between two opinions? You see, one of the things we've been talking to our kids about here lately is that it's hard to do the right thing. It's easy to do the wrong thing. It's easy to want my way. It's easy to live in comfort. It's easy to do the things that are convenient or that benefit me. But it's the hard things. Well, that's a different story. I'm going to have to think a little bit longer about that. And Jesus says narrow is the way, hard is the way, and few will find it. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Listen, if you want to live a life for yourself, if you want to vacillate between two opinions, if you want to have divided allegiance, you can do that. God is a gentleman, God. He'll allow you to do that. If you want to have uh, the best of both worlds, well, as long as you're alive, you can do that. But there will come a day where you and I will stand before God, and the Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is not just God, but that He is Lord. That means that He's the boss that he's the master, that he's the one who tells me what I can and should not do in my life. He is the Lord. So we can follow the crowd. We can allow popularity to determine our belief system, but that doesn't make it right. So the Israelites are standing here, and the drought is heavy on their mind. Their hearts are they're saddened because of everything that's happening. Everything is dwindling around them, and God is revealing to them in this moment their emptiness and barrenness of life that they have chosen. And he's about to remind them who he is and whose they are. You see, we have to be reminded of that a lot. I know I do. I have to be reminded of who I am in Jesus. I have to be reminded of my identity. I have to be reminded of whose I am. Because as the world is constantly barraging us with all the different things that are out there, we have to continue to keep our focus on who Jesus is. You see, the Israelites, they didn't get here overnight. The Bible says it's been three and a half years. So, you know, you ask yourself the question, how do you get to that point? I mean, really, think about it. How do you serve a false god? How do you do that? Something that you know is not real but yet you convince yourself that it's real. I mean, look around the world today. There's many, 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 many false religions, many false religions. And there are millions upon millions of people who follow that. Well, the question is, how do you get there? Well, I think it's pretty simple. I, I think that it's simply that the gauge that you gauge things by is broken. 
You know, when something, when you're in a situation and, you know, something goes bad or you sense that something's about to go bad and you remove, you ever been there, you remove yourself from that situation? Has that ever happened to you? Maybe two, three people in here. You know, when something's going on, you're in a situation and you say, this is just not right. This just, something doesn't seem right. And then all of a sudden you say, well, no, there, there's something wrong here. And you look around and, and everybody else is doing something different. And you say, it just doesn't feel right. A few uh, a while back, I had a family member uh, that took a trip. And uh, they were going up to uh, the northeast part of the United States. And as they were driving, uh, they noticed that all the cars just kept zooming past them. And it took them 20 hours to get to the northeast, 20 hours right above Virginia, 20 hours. That's a long drive. I've made that drive many times. It doesn't take you 20 hours. And as they were about to get to their destination, they said, you know, this is just, this doesn't seem right. All these people have been passing us this entire trip. Zoom and pass. Do they not have speed laws up here? I mean, is there not a speed limit? And all these people are passing them. And so they said, well, let's get out an app on our phone and let's see what the real speed is that we're going. Now, my speedometer says I'm doing 65. So they get an app out on their phone, and apparently there is one that does that. And sure enough, they're not doing 65. Guess what they were driving? 49. They had driven 49 miles an hour from Mississippi to Washington and the whole time, all these people are passing them, and they say, well, those people are just wrong. They're speeding. They shouldn't be speeding. And the whole time, they were, they were the ones that had the broken speedometer. You see, it's the same thing with us in life, is that when we look around, when we want to be right, we look at everybody else from our own perspective, right? We make our own rules. We say, well, I've got to be the one who's right. They must be the ones who are wrong. And so they lull themselves to believing that it was okay to worship God and to worship other false gods. And so Elijah says, hey, how long are you going to do that? How, how long are you going to limp between two opinions? You see what happened with the Israelites is they got used to their limp. They said, well, you know, God's not blessing us with uh, rain, but neither is Baal. And so it's okay for us to just worship both of them. You know, it gives us the benefit of the king, but it also gives us the benefit of calling on Yahweh God. And we get used to that. I've shared this story before, but several years ago when Noah was little, uh, he broke his foot. And so they put a cast on all the way up past his knee. And so as Noah, uh, you know, was just learning how to walk, well, he had this cast all the way up past his knee. And so as he would uh, begin to walk, he would walk like a pirate, and he would just carry his foot just like this everywhere he would go. And so he began to learn how to walk with that cast on his foot. Well, then, you know, his foot healed, and they took the cast off. And so guess what Noah did? He kept walking like a pirate. He just kept dragging his foot. Now, his foot was healed. It was absolutely fine. The bone had grafted back together. Everything was good. But in his mind, he still had a cast on, and he was still walking with the limp. I think a lot of people in our world today have the ability to, to live for Yahweh God. God has done everything that we need according to righteousness, the Bible says. And yet we're walking around like we're living in a cast, and we're limping between these two opinions. And so Elijah says, listen, how long are you going to do this? What is it going to take to get your attention? 
You see, the second blank on your handout says often God uses the most obvious things in our life to lead us and to teach us. God uses the most obvious things in our life to lead us and to teach us. You see, if money is your God, well, then God's probably going to use money to reveal himself to you. If people are your God, then the Lord Jesus will probably use people to remind you who he is. And if the false god of fire and rain like the Israelites with Baal is your God, well, then God's probably going to use fire and rain or the lack thereof to show you who he is. And so in verse 22, Elijah said, I, even I, only am left to profit for the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And the people answered, it is well spoken. So Elijah says, hey, look, this is what we're going to do. We're going to get these two altars, and we're going to pick a bull. You choose which one you want, I'll take the other one. And we're going to ask our respective gods to rain down fire. Now, I want you to notice a couple things in what we just read. In verse 23 and in verse 25, Elijah says to not use any fire. He says, do not use any fire. Twice he told them, do not use fire. Now, as I was studying and reading uh, on this, this was a common practice for the uh, sacrifices to Baal to light a small fire under their sacrifice, and then they would credit Baal with the fire. They say, oh, look what, well, look what Baal did. He just lit that fire. And they would, even sometimes they, some of their altars had uh, places dug out underneath the altar, and the priest would hide underneath the altar, and he would reach around and light the fire so no one could see it. And then they would give Baal the credit for the fire. And so Elijah says, no, no, we're not going to do any tricks here. Nobody's going to put any fire on anything. Only God is going to do that. Now, interestingly enough, Baal was known as the fire god. He was considered the fire or the body of the sun rather than Jesus, who is the light of the sun. And so they said, hey, this sounds like a great idea. Fire, Baal's the fire god. As a matter of fact, it's likely that we get our word bonfire from this scenario, which they called it Baal fire. And so here they, they have this competition, and he says, all right, you're going to call on your God, I'm going to call on my God, and we're going to ask for God to rain down fire. And whoever does that, he is truly God. Now, as you read this story, does it not seem odd to you that they're not asking for rain? Like, wouldn't that be the one thing after three and a half years of drought that you'd say, no, we don't need any more heat, Elijah. We need rain. It's, it's not rained for three and a half years. You see, they're not competing for rain. They're not competing for the thing that they think they need the most. Why is that? Well, it's because it's not what they need the most. You see, they don't need rain the most. They need commitment. They need obedience. You see, droughts don't just sneak up on you. They've got accustomed to this drought. 
And so as, as the drought has been going on for, you know, three and a half years, they're accustomed to this. And, and so, I, you know, I was thinking about droughts, and, you know, every once in a while that word is used on TV around here when we don't get rain for a little while. And so the official designation of a drought is no rain for at least 15 days. No rain for at least 15 days. And so here they are in the middle of a drought, desperate for rain. But God says, no, we're not going to compete for rain. We're going to compete for fire. And so what God is doing is he's teaching them about themselves. You see, just like droughts are, are not instant, you know, droughts don't happen overnight. Neither does falling away. You see, slowly they allowed other worship into their life. And that's what led them into where they are today. I mean, think about yourself. It's the same thing with you and I. You miss a Wednesday night. Then you miss a Sunday. All of a sudden, you miss two or three Sundays. Well, then you're not in, you're not in church. Now, all of a sudden, you spend a month, a month and a half. It's easy to do that. It's our life, I don't know, humans are wired that way. When we start missing things, slowly but surely, we just begin to fade away from that. And, and all of a sudden, it becomes familiar to us, and it becomes comfortable. Well, I didn't go last week, so it won't matter if I miss this week. You see, people don't just turn their back on God. They fade from God. Slowly but surely, they fade away. And unfortunately, if they come back at all, it normally takes a tragedy or a great need to bring them back. And here the Israelites stand before Elijah in great need. They need water. They need water for life. They need water for living. They need water for their livestock. And so I want you to see the next blank on your handout then, that reconciliation always precedes blessing. Reconciliation always precedes blessing. They had to become reconciled to God before God is going to bless them with rain. You see, God had to deal with their sin before he would bless them with rain. In Leviticus chapter 9, the Bible says, Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of the fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. You see, they were in the tent of meeting before God delivered the fire on the altar. And it's the same way with the Israelites. God says, no, we've got to go to the altar before we get rain. You see, for you and me, God deals with us the same way. Until we deal with sin, God is not going to work in and through our lives. We can't allow sin to just linger, you know, as Elijah said, to limp between two opinions that we've got to deal with sin. And what happens most often, though, is that we feel like, well, God, if, if I just do something for you, well, then you're, you're going to answer that you're going to respond, that I can warrant your activity. You see, human nature is to believe that we can control God. Just like the Israelites, they didn't believe that God controlled them. You see, we think that we're the master of our own domain, that we're the king of our own kingdom, that we can do whatever we feel like doing, whatever we want to do, uh, do. and then if we just do something for God, that if we, we do some Christian activity or we do something that we think will make God happy, that we'll, God will be obligated to do something for me. 
Well, you see, as we see the story here, as Elijah prayed, he says, hey, this is what we're going to do. And he brought all the people together and says, Elijah said to them uh, in verse 30, he says, he said to all the people, come near. And so everybody is in. And so they've got everybody in listening to what Elijah is about to say. And back up in verse 25, it says, Elijah said, choose for yourselves this bull. And so they took the bull and it says they prepared it and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. Verse 27, at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud for he is a God. Either he is musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried louder and cut themselves after was their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. So Elijah says, hey, what's going on, guys? I thought you said Baal was God. I imagine at the beginning of the day, Elijah's sitting over and under a shade tree, and, and he's saying, no, you guys, you just go ahead and do your thing. Because he knows what's going to happen. And he's standing over there, and nothing happens. And so finally he says, hey, maybe you should yell a little bit louder. Maybe God, you're, maybe your God is busy. Hey, maybe he's on a trip, and you just need to get his attention. And so he's saying, if you'll just scream louder, maybe he'll hear you. And they responded by doing that. They said, oh, well, that's a good idea. Maybe we should yell louder. And so they all began to yell louder and scream and try to get the prophet Baal or the false god Baal to respond. And yet he didn't do it. You see, there, there's this give and take relationship that they think that they have with the prophet, uh, with the uh, false god Baal. They think that if they do something for him, then he will do something for them. You see, they assumed that it was simply because they were doing it the wrong way or that they needed to do it better or more often that that was the reason Baal was not responding. Doesn't our world tell us the same thing today? Well, God's not doing anything in your life because you're not doing things. Well, if you would just do this different or if you would just do this more, and so there, there, this idea of legalism came about that if we would just have all these rules and regulations and if we, would, if we would do all of these things, if we would have a rule for every day of the year and if we would do all the things that, uh, that would appease God, that would make God happy, then surely he would respond to us. And so we, I believe the lie, you may have believed the lie, that if I was just doing it the wrong way, that I had to do things different, that I had to do things more. I remember when I was young and lost, I went to the Bible bookstore, and I got a book called uh, uh, Spending Time with God. And I remember reading that book from front to back saying, why is it that God is not present in my life? I must be doing something wrong. Have you ever been there? You just think that you can work and you can work and you can work and surely God will respond if I just try harder. And I got so tired of trying just like the false prophets were doing here that I just said, well, I, I don't understand this. I don't understand why when I do more that there's no response. And that's because I was serving a false God of legalism instead of Yahweh God. The prophets of Baal said, hey, God, 
Surely you're listening. It's the lie that we've all believed. If we just do better, then God will bless me. If I just do more, God will listen. And here's what happens when, that do, when there is no response. You see, when that doesn't work, just like in our story today, the enemy causes us to blame ourselves instead of looking to God. He says, well, it's your fault. You're not good enough. You haven't done the right things. God's not going to bless you. Look at all the wrong things that you've done. And so the prophets of Baal began to blame themselves. You see, God loves them just like he loves you. God created them just like he created me and you. And they're, they're astray just like the Israelites are here. And so the next blank on your handout is the work of God is not contingent upon our action but our obedience. Not contingent upon our action but it's on our obedience. That God desires our obedience. That we would follow that he's done all the work. He's the one in this story, as we'll see, that shows up. He's the one that does all the work. God just asks us to follow him. That's what he tells the disciples in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 19. He says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. He didn't say follow me so you can make yourself a fisher of men. He says, follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. And so the bell prophets thought, well, if we'll just do more, then God surely will hear us. In verse 30, Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And so this morning as we see, we're about to get to the pinnacle of the story. Of where God shows up. And ultimately this is a story about God demonstrating his ability to do absolutely whatever it is that he pleases. He has the ability to do things when it seems absolutely impossible. And so as we get into this part, what I want to encourage you to do is I want you to ask yourself, how can I see God do this in my life? How can I see the supernatural activity of God in my life? I was talking to a family member yesterday, and we were talking about the Spirit. And we were talking about the work of the Spirit of God. And uh, he was saying how, and, and there's a book that he's reading, and, and he said, you know, in the book it says that unless you're looking for the activity of God, you're never going to see it. And I said, that is 100% true. You see, in your life and in my life, if we're not pursuing the things of God, guess what we're not going to find? The things of God. If you're not looking for the activity of God, guess what's not going to happen in your life? The activity of God. It is those people, the Bible says, seek and you will find. He says, call unto me, Jeremiah 33, 3, and I will answer you. You see, God desires that we seek him out. And Elijah shows up at the altar, and he has one thing in mind, that he is going to communicate with the God of heaven. And God shows up when he does that. And so I want to encourage you this morning as we talk, I'm just going to give you three simple steps for the activity of God in your life. The, the first thing I want you to see here. The first step in seeing the activity of God in your life is to simply take a step in. To take a step in. Elijah tells him in verse 30, listen everybody, I want you to come in close. Now as I was thinking about this, I thought to myself, what would I do in that situation? I'm an Israelite, 
and I just saw this wacky display of the false prophets of Baal cutting themselves and screaming and limping around the altar, I probably would have backed up a little bit, right? Wouldn't you imagine that? Everything that's going on, I'm probably going to take a step back and say, I'm not quite sure what's going on here, but this doesn't look right. And so Elijah says, listen, everybody, I want you to come in. I want you to take a step in. You see, that's something that we talk about here very often at our church is just taking a step. That's why we have the pathway that we've talked about all the time is that we want to encourage you to take a step closer to God. If you're a visitor here today, uh, we are very grateful that you have chosen to come and worship with us. And our invitation to you is just take a step closer to God. We want you to take a step. You see, if you want to see God do things in your life, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to step towards God. James chapter 4 and verse 8 says, draw close to me and I will draw close to you. You see, undoubtedly when the Baal worshipers were acting crazy, it deterred people. However, God, he's not that way. God's a very welcoming God. And God said, guys, I want you to come in close. I want you to see everything that's about to happen here. You see, truth welcomes examination. Truth welcomes investigation. You see, when truth is uh, scrutinized, when truth is examined, it will shine forth in its glory. You see, that's why the Word of God, it's okay for you to ask questions. I know there's some young people in here today. It's okay for you to ask questions about God's Word. God welcomes that. God wants you to ask those questions. You know why? Because that means that you're seeking after God. The Bible says that there's none who seeks after God. No, not one. It is the Spirit of God that is drawing you when you're asking questions about God. And he says, hey, look, it's all right. If you want to ask questions, ask questions. Because you know how you get answers? When you ask questions. God's not hiding. There's nothing that he's trying to keep from us. He wants us to know everything that we could possibly know about him. And his invitation is, listen, I just want you to take a step in. He, he wants you to know what the truth is. One of my favorite verses is John 17, 17. Jesus says, sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. And we can stand and know, listen, if we've got unbelievers, we've got people in our life that don't believe the word of God, that's okay. I'm not imposing what I want you to believe on you. I'm telling you what God has done in my life and what I know to be absolutely true. And if you don't believe it, that doesn't make it not true. I just want you to know what I know to be true. And so that's why I'm so grateful that God put that verse in there. He says, your word is truth. And so God welcomed them in. You would think that the dishonesty of Baal worship would have been very obvious, but unfortunately, it wasn't to the Israelites. In Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 10, Isaiah writes, Prophesy not unto us right things, but speak unto us smooth things. Prophesy deceit. You see, what the world wants is smooth talking. The world doesn't want confrontation. The world doesn't want truth. The world wants relativism. But through grace, God says, look, I want you to come near. You see, if you're here this morning and you're in a drought, you know what God's invitation to you is? Just take a step in. He wants to draw you closer. He wants to bring you closer so you can see who God is. So the first step is that God wants you to take a step in. The second step then 
is for God to renew the damaged parts in our lives. The second step is for God to renew the damaged parts in our lives. In 1 Kings chapter 19, you'll see a chapter later. In verse 10, the Bible says, He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They have thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. The Israelites had torn down the altar of God. And Elijah says, no, we're going to repair this altar before anything happens. You see, if you want to see God work in your life, you've got to take a step in. And then you've got to allow God to renew those damaged parts. He's got to fix those things in your life. You see, God is in the restoration business. And even though Israel had strayed from God, he sent Elijah to restore that relationship. Doesn't that remind you of someone else? That we had broken down the walls of communication through sin between us and God. And because of his grace and his mercy, God sent his son, Jesus, to restore our relationship. You see, in our droughts, when we draw nearer to God, we have to be repaired. That we can't stand before God like we are. Isn't that why the Bible says, He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. That God took our place. The Bible says that He, uh, he put Jesus in our place. The term there is He imputed righteousness or He traded our sinfulness for His righteousness. And so what God does is He renews our damaged parts. And so here Elijah says, we're going to repair the altar. And so in verse 31, he took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time, and they came and did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time, and they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench with water. So Elijah says, look, we're going to do everything calm. We're going to do everything. We're not in a hurry. We're going to bring the water. We're going to prepare the altar. The Bible says that he put the wood in order. You see, I want you to see here that God is not in a hurry to prove who he is. God is not trying to race to make his point. That God has everything set in time. God knew exactly how long the drought would be. He knew exactly how long it would take to go get water from the sea and bring it back and pour it on the altar. God is doing everything very methodically. And I want you to be encouraged this morning that if you find yourself in a drought, if you find yourself in a point that you don't understand, that God is working, that God has everything in order, that you have not been forgotten, that it may be, it may seem like it's been three and a half years since God has sent rain in your life, but God is working, that God has a plan. And so as he brings all that in and he pours all the water on the altar, and then he says this. He says in verse 36, at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and he says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and I have done all of these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, 
you are God and that you have, that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Wow. Elijah prayed. It was a very simple prayer. He says, God, you are God, and God, I pray that you will reveal yourself to these people, that you would turn their hearts back. And so if you want to see God do something supernatural in your life, we step in. We allow God to renew the damaged parts in our life. And number three, and absolutely the most important part, is that we pray that we ask God to do something supernatural. You see, sometimes in your life, if you're walking with God, if you're following God, guess what's going to happen? God's going to ask you to do something that doesn't make any sense. Has that ever happened to you? God asks you to do something that doesn't make any sense, something that seems the opposite of what you should do. Now, now, wait a minute, God. You, you want me to go before the 450 prophets, false prophets of Baal. And God, you want me to have a competition of who is going to bring down fire. Now, God, I believe that you can bring down fire. I know that's going to happen. Now, wait a minute. You, you want me to put water on that fire, on that altar? No, you want me to do it three times? Wait, you want to dig a trench around this and put water? It seems impossible. But it wasn't impossible for God. You see, in our life, I think a lot of times what we say is, God, if you'll just do enough for me to get by. God, if you'll just, if you'll just let me watch. You don't have to let me be a part of it. If I can just stand in the crowd, God, and you just light that altar on fire. And God, you show them, God. You show them that you're God. I don't have to be a part of it, God. But you just do it, God. You just do it. You see, so many times in your life, and, and I'll confess in my life, when we spend time in prayer with God, guess what we're asking God for? Small things. God, will you just slay all the prophets of Baal and let's just skip all that fire thing? Right? We, we want the small things. We want the convenient things. We want the simple things. We're not asking God for big things in our life. We're not asking God to do supernatural things. And without a doubt, some of you in this room have heard this story, and you look at that and you say, wow, that was awesome, but that was in the Bible, right? Maybe you've said that, and you say, there's just no way that anything like that would happen today, or would it? When is the last time you asked God for something like that, right? I mean, how would you know if he would do it unless you asked him? Everything is possible with God, right? Anything, God can do absolutely anything. And so many times in our life, we shortchange God so much. We say, God, I'm in a drought in my life, and God, for three and a half years, I haven't had rain. Or you can substitute any situation you want in your life. God, this is going wrong at work. God, this is what's wrong in my relationships. God, this is what's happening in my finances. You name it. And what we often ask God for is not that God would do something supernatural, but that God would do something explainable. 
that God would do something simple just to get me to the next day, right? Is that not what happens? I've been guilty of the same thing. We're not asking God to do big things. We're not asking God to be supernatural in our life. We're not doing it. And for that reason, most Christians live their entire life absent from the supernatural power of God in their life because they're not asking for God to do that in their life. Here's Elijah standing before God. Not only did he ask for spontaneous combustion to take place, but he asked for it to happen in the presence of three jars of water, something that is simply impossible to do, and yet it was very simple for God. And so Elijah, in a calm way, in an orderly way, he says, God, will you show them that you're God? Will you do something supernatural in their life? God, will you do something that the prophets of Baal are unable to do? You see, I've always been told this, that if it can be explained by man, it was probably done by man. So when is the last time something happened in your life that can be only explained by God? Well, if the answer is never, when's the last time you asked for that to happen? When's the last time that you asked for God to do something supernatural in your life? Not that you would be glorified, but that God would be glorified. You see, God does those things in which he gets the most glory for. Elijah's not doing this to show himself. He's doing this to show who God is. You see, Martin Luther said, let God be God. And so Elijah's prayer is that God would be glorified. He says, let it be known that I am your servant. He wants everyone to know who he lives for and who he serves. You see, this wasn't a very easy prayer for Elijah. I mean, there's 450 people that are against him. He's the only one there. But yet Elijah stands before God and he simply says, God, will you answer this prayer? Will you show them who you are? And he didn't pray for rain. He knew they needed revival more than they needed rain. And so Elijah prayed that God would cause the fire to come up. And the Bible says in verse 38 that the fire uh, didn't leap up from the wood like normal fire for you and me would be, but that fire rained down from heaven. This was supernatural fire. This was fire that only God could provide. And so in verse 40, as we read, because of that and the revealing of the fact that the prophets of Baal were false prophets, the Bible says that they slayed all 450 false prophets. And then as you read further on in verse 45, it says, In a little while, while the heavens grew black and the rain and the clouds and the wind, there was a great rain. But they got what they needed. They needed rain. But it wasn't before they stepped in closer to God. That God renewed all those damaged parts that was between him and them. And they prayed and asked God to do something. That is when they received rain. You see, this demonstrates the power of God working in our life on our behalf every single day. God delights to work in your life and in my life when the conditions are the worst. And God often lets circumstances and situations get drenched with impossibilities before he works. This assures that God's going to get all the glory, amen? And so it was here on Mount Carmel. This was simply done to show that Jehovah God is greater 
You see, about 900 years later, there was another confrontation between good and evil. And there was a man that stood on an altar as well. His name was Jesus. And that altar was the cross. And Jesus sacrificed himself so that you and I would be renewed, that we could take a step in. The Bible says that the veil was torn from top to bottom so that you and I could take a step in. And God did something supernatural in that moment as well. Every Easter we celebrate the fact that the supernatural was that God took all of our sins and Jesus bore those on the cross, that he paid the penalty for your sin and for my sin. And that three days later, Jesus Christ rose from the grave. He is the only God who is alive today. He is the only one true living God. And it was because of the confrontation with evil that took place on another mountain called Mount Calvary. And so I want to encourage you this morning that no matter where you find yourself, if God can cause rain from, uh, he can rain down fire from heaven on an altar that's been drenched with fire, with water three separate times, he can do absolutely anything in your life. The question is, are you asking him to? Let's pray. God, we come to you, Lord. God, what an incredible display.